Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. On today's special episode, we have O'Reilly's Jen Webb in conversation with Maxwell Ogden. He is Director of Code for Science and Society. They talked about open data and a data rescue project around data.gov and other government data, and the DOT project, which is a data sharing tool that makes it easy to share data sets on the web. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Welcome to the show, Max. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thank you. So before we dive in, why don't we start with a little bit about you, your background and what you're up to now? Yeah, definitely. Um, I got into open data and sort of um, open source through the Code for America program back in 2010. Um, I had been playing around with a bunch of open data that um, the city of Portland, which is where I live, had been releasing. But the Code for America program, I moved down to San Francisco. And in Code for America, you get embedded inside of a city government. So I got to become a city of Boston employee. So I sort of split my time between the two coasts that year. And what's really great about the Code for America Fellowship is they let you do everything open source. And so that was the year I really got into open source software and building it for sort of civic hacking use cases. Mm -hmm. And um, that was also my bridge into the nonprofit world. So before that, I was working at some startups, but I was kind of looking for ways to contribute to more like civic technology initiatives. And I got connected with a lot of um, grant funders through Code for America and a lot of other projects. And because Code for America was pretty successful, um, it kind of opened a lot of doors. So I remember it was kind of stressful at the time because I had to take a pay cut to move to San Francisco from Oregon, which is kind of like the opposite <laughs> of what most people do. <laughs> yeah. um, living on like a stipend down there for a year. And so that was some some tough time, but um, it was ultimately worth it for the connections in the end. And I was able to start my own nonprofit called Code for Science as not an official spinoff, but sort of like a spiritual spinoff. Mm -hmm. Because I got connected up with, um, after working on city government data projects, uh, I got connected with a bunch of scientific use cases and preserving research science and making it more accessible. So there's a lot of science, scientific data being generated, but the tools are sort of still stuck in the 90s in terms of the workflows like FTP servers and things like that, uh, which, which work well for basic workflows like manually downloading data, but they're... Um, there aren't great tools that are keeping up with the more networked scientific stuff that's happening with people, different labs reusing each other's data, people wanting to publish data immediately and have different versions and everything. Mm -hmm. And so before we dive into Code for Science, I want to talk some more about that. But there's been um, a little press lately about the data rescue events that have been going on and some uh, initiatives like the Environmental Data and Governance Initiative and the Data Refuge Project, which I think you're involved with both of those, right? Um, yeah, I've been working with especially the Data Refuge folks. So um, EDGI is um, an existing organization, and I've sort of been lightly collaborating with them. They're, I think they're based at a couple universities. But then Data Refuge is a bunch of librarians who kind of started a project to have the library, the librarian community around the U.S. at different research institutions sort of rise to the challenge of coming up with a mirror network of all public research data. So especially federal stuff, which mm -hmm. may be at risk of disappearing. Right. And they sort of cite a thing called the Federal Library Depository Program that libraries used to run, which was a copy of physical federal um, documents that mm -hmm. were, was distributed across different libraries around the country as sort of like a secure vault. Um, and so they're sort of trying to reboot this initiative 
for scientific data so that data can live simultaneously in the original location, say at NASA or NOAA, but then it can have a second copy that's hosted at libraries. And what's really great about them is they represent the library community, but they're trying to bridge it with the open source and scientific kind of software communities um, to try to make kind of like a next generation digital library. Right, right. And the, one of the focuses right now is on rescuing government data, correct? The, the data rescue events are focusing on that? Yeah, they've had dozens of events over the last couple of months around the country at different um, universities hosted by a lot of times the librarians at those universities. And the goal is to identify the data that might disappear. And if it were to disappear, would that impact the ability for that data to be cited again in the future? Um, so, you know, it can come across as sort of hyperbolic, like, I'm not sure if we, if anybody in the community really knows if data will literally get deleted. Um, a lot of the stuff that's happened so far has been things like agency pages will get their messaging turned over, or in one case, you know, they removed the word science from the EPA website mm -hmm. and things like that. And then in another case, they removed all the open data from the White House, right. um, broke all the URLs to that. Um, and so, you know, anytime that something is deleted from the web, it's always hard to trust other copies of it. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that sort of the community woke up to is that there hasn't really ever been these large scale efforts to make backups of these systems in an archival way, um, like across the board. So one of the projects I've been doing is making the first ever backup of all of data.gov, uh, which is, um, it's not all of the data on the government. It's all the data that has been published um, from there, there is a policy in the federal government that you're supposed to, if you're an agency, tell data.gov all the open data that you have. Um, but they kind of rely on those agencies to self-report. Mm -hmm. So they've, uh, in a couple of years, they've made a pretty big data set of a couple million data sets across, like, I think like a thousand federal agents or federal departments. And they've been focusing on getting more and more of these data sets listed, but they've never actually made a like an archival backup or done uh, an analysis on how much of the data is actually accessible. So um, we think it's really important to do that while the data is still online. So if if we can make a snapshot as close to you know January twentieth, like the new president coming in, as possible, and then in the future if something is changed, um, then we can refer back to what it used to be. And so a lot of those files, um, it's unclear if they've ever been programmatically downloaded and archived. And um, we're trying to create like um, a kind of a history or like a version control of all the data that's on data.gov and as well as doing continuous monitoring on it to see if anything changes. Mm -hmm. So that's been fun. It's about 40 terabytes of data, um, which is not like the hugest data set in the world. I was actually just on NASA's website yesterday and found a project that um, generated just one scientific survey generated 60 terabytes of data. So there are, there's a lot of data out there and not all of it is on data.gov. And, but not, you know, the question is exactly how much is on data.gov and then what other stuff out there, um, should be on data.gov, but isn't yet. That's something that we're interested in working on is through the volunteer efforts of data refuge, getting people to like, for example, go to this NASA data set I found, which is where they, they flew a plane over Antarctica with like LIDAR lasers to measure ice levels. Mm -hmm. And they generated all this data about the ice coverage in Antarctica. And it's sitting on the NASA website, but it's not backed up on data.gov yet. So if we can help like link those and get that data listed on data.gov, then it'll be a higher chance that that data will get archived and backed up and be kind of trustworthy in the future. Right. So a lot of the question about all this stuff is 
not to get too meta, but it's not necessarily the data, it's the metadata, because if the data isn't like discoverable and well listed in like a public repository, then it's, it'll maybe never get found or used or backed up. And these, so these data rescue events are where um, people are volunteering to help mine the data. Is that correct? I think that's what a lot of people think going into it. Like somebody actually asked me if they should have hard drive space free on their laptop when they showed up. And um, I think the downloading and mining part isn't necessarily the bottleneck. It's the, um, the making sense of the incredibly complicated bureaucratic technology that the government uses. So the other day I was trying to download a different NASA data set and I had to click through four different um, domains in a, like you would go to one site and it would say access data and you'd click that it would pop up a different site that said sign in to access the data even though it's open data they wanted you to create an account and then you had to go through two other sites to create your account and log in and then you go back to another site that actually has the data and it was this incredibly complicated jumping through all these hoops to just download a file and so a lot of times the data, I've been kind of thrown around this term dark data, which is like I hear from somebody at NASA that there's, I don't know, 20 petabytes of data somewhere. Mm-hmm. But then when you look at data.gov, you only see 40 terabytes. And so it's like, well, where is all the data? It must be there. Like we know it's, it, it exists, but we just can't, like nobody can give me the links online to where the data is. Right. And um, so it makes it really hard to compare or download, you know, make a full mirror of it. So um, I think the big bottleneck that a lot of people are working on at these events now that are, they're starting to realize is that we've kind of got all the easy stuff, all mm-hmm. the stuff that's like pretty trivial, but now it's diving in and kind of doing the detective work to find the data behind the web apps and behind the landing pages and the stuff that's a little bit more hidden. Mm-hmm. So um, kind of a lot of web scraping and data detective work is I think the main focus now. And then also like kind of um, questions around long-term sustainability um, there's a lot of archives getting involved. So the Internet Archive is getting involved and they've archived a couple hundred terabytes. And what's really cool about them is that they have a forever commitment to their storage. So yeah. if you upload a file, it's there. They guarantee it's there forever. And the asterisk is their current estimate is at least 80 years, which is pretty good. Right, right. <laughs> um, so I think that there's groups like Internet Archive and other universities I've been working with the California Digital Library, and they have a lot of space on the University of California system. And they said that the UC system loves to do the opposite of what the federal government does. So if the federal government is deleting data, that that California will want to like host the data. And so it seems to me like the storage isn't the hard part. It's what we need is sort of tech-minded volunteers who want to dive into these really complicated, like NASA obscure data portals and try to get the underlying data out. Um, so that we can like discover it. Because if you can't discover it in the first place, then uh, we can never get to the archiving phase. Right, right. And there's ways people can can help, uh, even if they can't attend any of these events or work with directly with um, the initiatives. Like there's a P2P approach going on too, right? I think you've written about that. Yeah. Um, what we're interested in, in general, with um, like all the work that our nonprofit is doing is increasing the speed to access a lot of the scientific data. Um, and so that to us starts with looking at where the bottleneck is. If you're using something like Dropbox to host your data, there's going to be um, costs associated with hosting it. And there's mm-hmm. going to be a limited bandwidth. Like if, if you have a huge file and you want to sync it between two machines, um, it's a lot more efficient to go directly between them than it is to have to go through a server like on the other side of the world in certain cases. Um, as, as good as cloud computing is getting, um, they 
because a lot of these data centers have limited bandwidth, they end up not being as fast as if you could get if you could download the file from say 20 people around the world at once. Right. If you're just downloading it over one tiny slurping from one thin straw rather than having 20, 20 straws and 20 different milkshakes. <laughs> right. So what we're really interested in is finding approaches from things like BitTorrent, which is traditionally used for piracy, doesn't have very good um, privacy uh, respect for the user and doesn't really work for private data sets and try to build those approaches in that are really good at distributing a lot of data very cheaply and very efficiently, but then applying them to sort of the public sector, um, stuff like public research data, open government data. So we have a project called the Svalbard Projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's pretty cool. We're really excited about that because it's it's kind of modeled after this thing in the Arctic on the island of Svalbard. They, they built an underground seed vault. It's a biological seed, like kind of DNA backup, where they have all these seeds in cold storage under the permafrost. Yeah. And um, in case there's a catastrophe, we can have a backup of all that data there. So we thought the internet needs one of these as well. That's a distributed vault of all of the metadata for any data set. So we've been downloading all the data.gov data, all the stuff the Internet Archive has. And together, we've got about, so far, of uh, public data, public data sets. We have about 30 million files and about 200 terabytes worth of data. And we've, we have all the hashes of all the data. So if somebody say that in six months, a file disappears or somebody suspects that a file has been edited um, maliciously or not, um, you can compare the copy that has been distributed through our Svalbard metadata vaults and say, well, what was the exact, like, what was the hash of this file or the version of this file six months ago? And does it match the one that's here now? And by kind of distributing this around in a big peer-to-peer network, it diminishes the possibility of one central point of censorship, I guess, because if everybody has a copy, you can't go around to everybody's house and edit everyone's copy. So it's kind of similar to how in Bitcoin, you can only spend your money if everybody else in the world agrees that you had the money in the first place. Right. Um, and so a lot of the scientific kind of um, data set infrastructure relies on trusting one server or trusting the one location. And I think that a lot of people are uh, starting to wake up to the idea that, you know, it's, for as long as the web has been around, we've trusted that if the website has a .gov on it and it's a scientific file that the scientists are doing a good job. They're curate, you know, keeping the data curated and archived and valid and um Now we're sort of thinking, well, maybe we should have a secondary trust system as well in case, you know, these files get like modified in some way, which may come across as a little bit conspiracy theory-y, but I think every day that I wake up and read the news, I... Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think so anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I I think that the criticism is valid there. So with Svalbard, we're hoping simultaneously we can build this trust system around um, like archiving public data and... But then also what's really cool about it, um, we have a project called the Data Silo, which is kind of a pun because usually we talk about data silos as being bad things, right, right. Um, but we're sort of trying to you know, make light of it. But you can build a data silo, which is like a, it's inspired by the SETI at Home project. And um, that is where you run a screensaver that kind of searches for signals in SETI data, deep space data, um, using your computing power when mm-hmm. you're not using your machine. And we thought it would be cool to have uh, kind of like a data at home project so that you could, um, as, as long as you trusted us as the curators of the scientific data, then you can subscribe to our subscribe to our feed of all the data that we think needs faster distribution. And so if there's a data set that some repository is um, hosting on, say, Amazon Web Services, 
Um, if we can distribute it using the Svalbard project and the data silo nodes, then um, if somebody goes to download that data set, they can use all the people's, like all the volunteer um, upload bandwidth to download a copy of it for free. And it'll be faster than if they download it from um, the one server that's like getting hammered a lot. Right. And so we can kind of do two birds, one stone with having a distributed archive, which helps with redundancy and trust, but then also it helps with the, like re- re- removing the load on the original server. Uh, I was talking with the Open fMRI projects, which hosts um, a couple hundred data sets from uh, brain imaging. And they spend about $5,000 a year just on bandwidth. And they're a fairly niche community. Um, you know, they don't have like millions of, of downloads or anything like that. It's, it's just because the volume of data that they're hosting is, has a pretty high average like megabyte count. And so every download, they're spending a couple bucks um, of bandwidth that, you know, they could be putting towards their research. So we're hoping to um, sort of make the scientific data sinking um, just like faster in general, because a lot. Of, I think the thing that every scientist that I talk to complains about is how much time they spend wrangling the data and making sure the data is the right data. And then, then in six months, like the whole system breaks and they have to rewrite it. And so it's a pretty big pain point. Right. So talk to me a little bit about some of, you mentioned some of the logistic challenges um, in extracting this data, but what, what are some of the other challenges you're facing with this um, so like the web, even the web itself is something of an issue, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword. I was reading Tim Berners-Lee's book, Weaving the Web, mm-hmm. um, recently, just because I was like wanting some historical perspective on all this. <laughs> and he talks about how when people were designing, you know, different proposals uh, before HTTP was, you know, adopted by anybody, there were these really complicated ones that had these really cool features, like in, anytime a link would break, we would immediately know that the page was a 404 and it could like self-heal and all the servers could talk to each other and let them know that the page was down and it could be replaced with another one. And But then on the downside of that was it was way too complicated to get everybody to adopt because it wasn't the simplest thing. And ultimately why HTTP ended up working was because... Um, it was really kind of the dumbest one. <laughs> and it had like the least amount of um, uh, different or like complexity to implement. So you could just write an HTTP server naively in your language and kind of like host it. And it was really easy. You didn't have to like have a PhD in hypermedia to understand it. And but then the downside of HTTP is that um, but also the reason that it took off was the 404 page. Like it's um, built into the web that data can disappear, but that doesn't break the web. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it, you know, it, it breaks things in certain ways, but it's it's what's allowed the web to move fast without having to worry about, um, you know, being too complicated and having all this archival stuff built in. And I was also reading about this thing called the handle system, which is um sort of web thing that never took off and but it's still used in science so anytime you see on a scientific paper a doi or a um, a persistent identifier that's actually using this thing called the handle system which was designed by the same um, person that designed the tcp protocol and it it came out in kind of like the early 90s and it was sort of like a version of http but it had more um, persistent linking built into it so it had things like trust and um uh, links could be re- repaired. So if the original link goes away, like you could propagate the new link out to all the servers and they could fix the links. Huh. And it never really took off because, well, actually, I'm not really sure why. It's just one of those things that never cut, took off. But for some reason, the academic community is keeping it alive with the DOI system. And I thought that that was really interesting that, um, you know, it kind of found its niche in a in a place where like scientists really care that they're 
um, their data is accessible forever. Right. And there's a study that's actually pretty shocking to me that was done by um, one of the a researcher at um, Los Alamos National Labs. And what they did was they downloaded every paper from the top journals like Science and Nature for the years from 2007 to 2012. And they looked, they mined the text of the papers and they found every HTTP link that appeared in the text of the paper. So it could be at the citations or it could be in the body of the text itself. And they clicked on all the links um, with a with a program, and they just looked, they kind of monitored it over time. And what they found was that one out of every five links was broken at the end of the five-year period. And so that's a pretty huge, like 20% yeah. of references in, in like the most highly rigorous peer-reviewed stuff. This is like, at the, you know, supposed to be the cream of the crop. Um, 20% or one out of every five are kind of broken links or the content. This is like, they, what they said is the more um, serious issue is in a lot of ways, if you get an error page, like, hey, there's a 404, this file is no longer found, that one's at least easy to detect because it's a clear error. But um, they said that a lot of these pages also had what they call content drift. So the original author may have linked to one page, but then at some point, the page got, the content got changed. And so you have no idea of knowing, other than the Internet Archive Wayback Machine, if the the thing map the thing that you got in your browser when you clicked on the link matches the thing the scientists hoped that you would get. Right. And so there's kind of a big missing infrastructure for preserving like, you know, we can preserve the PDF of the paper in science, but all the links out to the web, that's sort of like the Wild West. And there isn't really a good system for keeping that stuff around. So that's one of the things that we're working on is kind of version controlling data sets um, as part of what we hope is a contribution to this problem. Right. Um, if you can link to a version control, just like with linking to your code on GitHub, which more and more scientists are starting to do, there isn't really an equivalent of sort of the GitHub for data. And this is something I've been working on for about four years now. Um, and it's what sort of started the nonprofit um, called the DAT Project. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask if those two things were connected, if that was what you were going after. Yeah, yeah we started the DAT Project and it sort of when we realized that the scope was bigger than just a software data version control tool, um, we sort of spun out the nonprofit itself so we could um, do more nonprofit-y things. Like we're partnering with a lot of libraries and, and et cetera. But the core thing, thing that we build is called DAT. And um, actually, this last month, we just announced our um, DAT desktop tool. So we have a desktop application. If you want to, if you have listeners out there that are interested in trying out beta software, it's the feature set of DAT is basically like Dropbox, where you just have a folder on your machine and it synchronizes it to other people online. But the difference is we're an open source alternative to Dropbox. So there isn't really an open source alternative to Dropbox at all. And we're sort of designing our use case around the same things that Git does. So to enable um, a community of people online to share openly their version controlled like works and have sort of decentralization like baked into the tool. So that you can host your data on your own machine, you can um, you don't have to um, host everything on Dropbox's servers. That's less of a political thing for us. It's more of just a like I mentioned earlier. If you can host your data in ten different places, then the downloads are faster and the bandwidth is cheaper. So it's more of just like a practicality of the size of a lot of these scientific data sets is so huge that we think that sort of a peer to peer approach makes a lot more sense. Mm -hmm. But the desktop tool is um, is sort of our beta, our first ever like user-friendly web application or and desktop application that you can try out um, and just sync a folder between 
yourself and one of your like, colleagues, or you can use it for downloading. We have a couple example data sets on our website, um, some campaign finance data from some journalists and some scientific data. You can actually make a, you can also use the dot desktop tool to download the entire data.gov mirror that I mentioned. If you right. have 40 terabytes available, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, in case there's anybody out there with 40 terabytes, definitely email me. And, but also you can kind of publish your own data sets. So what we're hoping to get into is having a system where you can take a data set and publish a version of it. And then that version of the data set can kind of get locked in the public record. And our ultimate goal is a scientist can cite a data set that lives in a DAT. And that way you can use the DAT tool to verify, you know, this, this problem of content drift. If you have versioning built into your data hosting system, then in the future, somebody else can, um, know that they can get the exact same version that was published and trust that the data all matches and hasn't been modified at all. Hmm. Interesting. And so uh, as you're going on talking about sort of um, the chain of custody and and keeping a clear and trustworthy line of, of provenance, really, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is this is, is there any application for like blockchain technology in this? Yeah, I, um, I think about the sort of idea of the blockchain a lot. And it also goes back to the Git commit log in the Git version control tool. Um, there's actually an engineer named Graydon Hoare who was working on a version control tool that kind of predated Git. Git Git gets all the credit for um, creating the idea of sort of like the hash chain or the blockchain in version control. Mm-hmm. Um, but there there were some projects, some earlier projects before that kind of pioneered the idea of having every, th- every state in your history be sort of like validatable and verified using like cryptography. Yeah. And um, the... And then Bitcoin kind of followed on on that. And the thing that I don't like about Bitcoin specifically or blockchain specifically is that um, their trust model is that they trust no government or no centralized agency at all. And so you have to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater mm-hmm. and you have to, um, if you put all of your stuff on the blockchain, you get some really cool integrity guarantees and security guarantees around modifying your data, but you have no way of but I have a hard time imagining a lot of like universities and public agencies and um, things like that, like adopting a system like this, because it's sort of a, uh, it's a departure away from the sort of trust models that they're used to. And a model that I think is a little bit better suited for public institutions is this thing called the Secure Registers Project that came out of the uh, government digital service in the UK. So the GDS is sort of like um, this tech department in the UK government that does a lot of open source and work around, you know, making government websites better to use, more accessible, um, have more open data available, things that um, code, for, um, code for America in the States, or we also have a thing called ETNF and the US Digital Service. GDS is sort of like the, the sister organization in the UK. Um, they have a project called the Registers Project that is all of their data that they release. Um, what they're trying to do is um, use the concept from the blockchain that all the data is signed using the identity of the issuing agency. And so you can get the, the metadata feed for the, that accompanies the data. And you can use the metadata feed to prove that the data hasn't been tampered with and also prove um, that it came from the government authority that issued it. So if somebody tries to give you fake data, um, you can use the government's public identity, the agency office that published it, their public identity to prove that um, the copy that you got is in fact the one that they issued and not some other version. And if, and similarly, if the data was modified, you can detect that it was modified. 
And they actually have a spec now, a W3C spec called Open Registers that we're really excited about. And to me, it's like all the best parts of Bitcoin or like the blockchain um, without all of the kind of completely decentralized governance parts. So um, it's just like it's like half of what's cool about the blockchain without having to go whole hog on the, on the whole thing. Um, because I'm not sure if like the complete zero governance model will map to, for example, like existing government agencies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Open Registers Project came out of a government agency. And it's, I think, a really cool idea to add incrementally add more trust into public data um, without kind of going like super radically like beyond where a lot of agencies I think are comfortable. So, um, but I think a lot of it is based on the same kind of cryptographic principles. And I think that actually the Open Registers Project came out of a project at Google that was around um, SSL certificates. And there's an issue around if a certificate gets um, invalidated, like what happened with Heartbleed a couple years ago, where mm-hmm. all these certs immediately, like everybody had to tell everybody that their certificates were like hacked and you shouldn't use these certificates anymore. Um, the browsers didn't have a good mechanism for distributing all of these um, bad certificates. And so they looked into data sync um, projects and they came up with a thing called certificate transparency. And um, so there's there's a lot of kind of, if you dive in below kind of just the blockchain community and you look at the underlying security principles, that's kind of where I found about certificate transparency and open registers. And I would say DAT is in there as well. Um, but we we have kind of different goals, I would say. Right, right. And so, you know, when you're looking at the landscape right now, I mean, how, what, just kind of in general, you know, how scary is it, right? I mean, it feels like when you're reading the news and the headlines, you're like, oh my God, they closed, you know, open data, open government data is gone. And it's not gone yet. But I mean, like, where, where are we? And, and, you know, we're doing these data rescue things right now and then making mirrors of, of existing data. What do we do going forward? Like, so that the data, not only the archive data remains useful, but we're able to access new data. Yeah, that's a um, thinking of this moment in time in the historical perspective. It reminds me of an article that Vince Cerf, one of the authors of the TCP protocol, um, did a couple years ago about he called the moment that we're living in a digital dark age where we're going to look back at the period from when the internet began to when we solved this problem, which is an unknown year. We haven't solved it yet. Um, but imagine we're in the year 2050 and we look, we try to click on links to the old web and we get all these errors and we're like, what happened back then? Like we've lost all these links have rotted away and we've lost all of this legacy. Um, like thankfully we have the internet archive is backing up a lot of it, but there's still a lot of the internet that you can't get at with crawling. And there's, a, you know, I think that the U.S. spends like $150 billion a year on research. And a lot of that research gets distributed out online. But then, you know, as we've seen, there's a lot of that, those links break over uh, within five years. And so there's, until we figure out how to upgrade the web to have more archivability in it, there's just a, a current struggle to document it all and make copies of it all and make sure that those copies can be trusted in the future. And I think that um, this is the first sort of like reg- regime change that we've seen since the web really existed, where we're starting to um, lose a little bit of trust in the government's ability to maintain its own archives. And so now it's kind of falling on the library community and volunteer communities to do that. So I think I'm not really scared. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised tomorrow if, for example, they removed all of the climate research from the NASA and NOAA right. websites. Yeah. Uh, it would not surprise me. However, I'm not expecting that to happen. 
um, I think that it's more it, it, it's it's more just like the community is catalyzing around like if this did happen, we would be very we would be caught out. We would be very surprised and not prepared with backup copies. And we might, um, you know, we might not be able to trust the existing backups that have been made because they um, they were not made with enough rigor and enough like metadata to link them to the original versions. And so I think it's good that the community is sort of thinking about these issues of long term legacy around our publicly funded research and making sure that we can have systems that are resilient against these kind of changes, even if on a day-to-day basis, I, you know, I don't really have evidence to support that the data is going to get deleted. It's just that, it, you know, like I said, it wouldn't surprise me, but everything that I've seen about it, um, it's more just raising the question of, well, let's just, let's stop assuming it won't get deleted. Let's assume it will get deleted so that we're prepared for it. So maybe it's it's in a left-handed way kind of a good thing that we're being made to address this because it, it was certainly going to come up at some point, right? <laughs> yeah, and uh, this is actually, this reminds me of another thing where this happened was when the healthcare.gov launch failed a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a huge, you know, Obama got a lot of flack for it. It was a huge thing. It seemed like a really low point for software and government. But the silver lining around that was it was such a catastrophe. It, it embarrassed everyone in government. It wasn't. Uh, it became a bipartisan thing. It was just such an embarrassing use of public technology money that they invested heavily in hiring better technologists. Mm-hmm. And so now there's these agencies I mentioned earlier, ATNF and USDS, were basically created as a response to prevent another healthcare.gov from happening. And so you know there was like a huge like failure, a very embarrassing failure of. Like, I think a lot of public servants that did software is a very low point for them when we couldn't even accept healthcare signups, which is like, you know, a very basic thing you would think right. be able to write software for that, especially for the amount of money that we spent. But what it kind of um, raised the alarm on is, well, procurement in software, procurement of software in government is so bad. And it's such a important thing to get right. But we've kind of ignored it. Like a lot of people go and work in Silicon Valley and they can work in really advanced like tech companies. But then you go and you look at the kind of not to use the word Stone Age, but maybe like 10 years or 20 years outdated systems that are still being like bought from these horrible third party government contractors, people kind of realize, well, what we need to compete with the Silicon Valley crowd and hire those people directly into the federal government. And that's exactly what they've done with the US digital service. Mm -hmm. So um, the silver lining on that is that with a big catastrophe, um, it kind of makes everybody wake up to the issue and kind of be proactive about it in the years following. And I think that's exactly what's happening with um, access to data and science now. Right. And so what are some of the other initiatives you're working on at Code for Science? You've got some projects focused on um, journalists specifically and some open government stuff, right? Yeah, um, we're our official name is Code for Science and Society, so mm-hmm. we don't want to just be too scientificy. But we're we're working on a project called the CA Civic Data Coalition, and that's a pretty interesting project from a group of journalists across different newsrooms in California who are trying to make the campaign finance data, which comes from various sources, and they have to scrape a lot of it and aggregate it. They're trying to just make it easy so that if you're a journalist, you don't have to spend the years of wrangling the data that they did in order to answer basic questions like which politician in California received the most funds from so-and-so group. And so their data, they release every day, and it's about a gigabyte of data that they release every day because it's they release their entire archive every day, plus all the new stuff in the last 24 hours. And so we're trying to work with them to make their data um, easier to um, subscribe to and access and manage the different versions. Mm -hmm. 
And then in addition, we're working with the um, now directly the data.gov team on this data.gov kind of backup issue. And one of the, the, the projects we're doing, it's all this stuff in California, actually, oddly enough. Um, the California Digital Library, um, what they want to do is create a mirror of data.gov that's hosted on the UC system. I kind of mentioned this earlier, but they're, they're wanting to do a, a live mirror. So anytime a data set is published, um, say it's at NASA, and then that data set gets linked into the data.gov um, kind of metadata collection, then we would automatically discover that and sync it out to California, make a backup on a University of California server. California Digital Library can maintain links to both the original and their copy. And so we can kind of like make sure there's always a live backup going on, um, which is going to be pretty cool. So we're, we're, we're really interested in working with journalists, especially because um, they really have they love to dive into data and ask really difficult questions of it. And those are the kind of people that we want to be building our tools around. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would say, our, but in general, our three focus areas are sort of um, access to research data for scientists and then access to like public data for journalists mm-hmm. and then access to government data for civic hackers or um, governments that want to publish data themselves. So those are government science and journalism are sort of the three most exciting kind of public data areas that um, I think need a lot better tools for a lot of this stuff. And you've kind of got a mission at at your company, right? That's um, focusing on making data more accessible to people who aren't data scientists. So you don't have to be a coder or a hacker to, to use your tools. Yeah. Yeah. Like the frustrating thing that a lot of people have to do still is they, they want to answer a question of some data and they have to spend half of their their Python notebook or half of their code downloading and understanding and parsing and munging and all this stuff. It reminds me, like in open source, what's really cool about when you have a tool like Git and GitHub, if somebody else does the work, they can publish their project and everybody else can benefit from them being the only person that has to do the work the first time the hard way. Mm -hmm. And then everybody else can just use their solution. But because we don't really have a workflow for data sets in the same way, I think everybody ends up having to be an expert in 10 different topics in order to get to the, the data to a quality that it's it's useful for answering questions. So that's it's ultimately we're all about lowering the barrier to um, getting access to data and also make everything faster and cheaper for sharing these larger data sets. And so before we close, I, I just want to ask you who and or what is inspiring you? What gets you out of bed in the morning, Max? Oh, that's a good question. I actually, I've been... Working with this um, New York Times reporter, Amy Harmon, mm-hmm. and um, she's been diving into this this problem of kind of the dark data on the web. And so I've been a big fan of her work lately and just journalists like investigative journalists that are trying to make these really boring topics like metadata, like interesting to the public. And she was able to get a story about metadata on the front page of the Science Times, which is a pretty big feat, I think, for yeah. my, you know, like a journalist in this day and age. And I'm also really impressed with the Internet Archive um, because they do their they I think that they they think in longer timescales than most organizations. Mm-hmm. And they they really understand like the digital nature of like archiving, which a lot of libraries are only really now waking up to. But they've been thinking about for 20 years. And so I'm, I'm constantly impressed by the Internet Archive. So I, I guess I'm I'm a big fan of folks who are trying to advance journalism and libraries to benefit us all better because they're two areas that like obviously journalists journalists and librarians are 
getting less and less resources over time, um, as a lot of these things are getting defunded or going out of business. And so people who are recognizing their importance to society and trying to um, kind of bring the cutting edge technology approaches to those fields, I'm all for that. Well, this has been great, Max. Thank you so very much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you. For more on uh, data science, big data, and artificial intelligence, please come to our many events. And there are two of them. There's Strata plus Hadoop World, which you can find at strataconf.com, and the O'Reilly AI Conference, which is at o'reillyaicon.com. You can follow Maxwell Ogden at Denormalize. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.